Hi everyone, welcome back to part 2 of episode 3 of the Decolonial Hub podcast. Make sure to check out part 1 if you missed it, everything will make more sense. So today we are continuing our discussion on syllabus deconstruction by exploring actionable practices to deconstruct a syllabus and insert alternative pedagogies. We are still joined by our special guest, Matthias. I'm Matthias. I'm a third year student in the Film and Moving Image Studies PhD program at Concordia. I love how we keep having the... And I think, thank you, Matthias, because I think you're the one bringing that in, but a lot of... Um, musicality to this syllabus deconstruction discussion and I'm starting to think that maybe a jam session and a syllabus deconstruction you know session is kind of a similar thing and I wonder how we can translate like what we can take from a jam session into the process of a syllabus deconstruction. I mean yeah I think it's so much about like the principles of like the ensemble and improvisation and how these things can sort of be brought into different sort of and sort of reinvigorate and animate and amplify different other types of sociality. Right. For me, at least in my, in my experience, something that I've found really helpful and a lot of, even though I'm technically in film studies, I do a lot of, like a lot of the conferences I present at are music oriented. Um, so a lot of the time we spend a lot of time just like sitting around, listening to music in the classroom. So, so someone will, and this is a kind of a new thing for me, right. So, for example, I, I presented at a conference that was like on um, the improvised music society. So you had people representing all types of different musical musical traditions, but with the focus being on improvisation. And not only did I notice really quickly that the type of sociality that was in, like sort of inaugurated was very different than what I was used to in an academic setting, just because people are used to playing with one another in an improvised setting. So even like we the panels, like there was no moderator, people would just kind of go up and they would hand it off almost like you were like soloing and then you would pass it off to the next person. There wasn't those like really weighty, like long intros where people talk about like everything you've done or whatever, which isn't actually anything that you've done because what you're doing is probably beyond those descriptions. Um, just things like that, but also just sort of learning the importance of just like sitting in a room with one another and then just listening for like five to 10 minutes to music together which is just something that like, I just never really associated with the classroom whatsoever. So I, I almost like find myself thinking more and more about how can we sort of lock into this the sort of the way that music can produce knowledge, just because it opens up this opportunity to listen together because of that. And then what type of new sociality will that impart for like, say the duration of the seminar or for the duration of the term? that once we can open up that sort of space, because I think like Alban, when you're talking about like the jam session, but it's like also the, the listening component of the jam session is so important, right? About how do we listen to one another? I'm thinking there's a program I'm doing and it's funny because you start this, um, the teaching with music and so people are dancing and everything. And um, I don't know, I see it as so many different, I don't know, I thought it was interesting because the presumption was you're doing scientific work or professional or academic, you're not supposed to find pleasure in it so explicitly, right? So anyways, for me, there's also many things that are tied into like the musicology of the experience. And uh, I don't know, I feel there are many ways to, to use it and to find value in it. It also helped break down a lot of barriers because it was a connecting moment for us. And then we could access conversations around vulnerability faster too. And with more like, I don't know, more intention. Um, but yeah, I do feel it's um, yeah, lots of opportunities 
And with language, you also have sometimes language. So hearing something that's not you, that's not about you too, and like creating respectful space for them to exist through their own rhythm. I feel it's also super interesting and like, you know, killing the assumption that's supposed to be French or English or that type of French or that type of English as well. Because uh, Frenchness and Englishness are not universal. Um, but yeah. And um, and then I was wondering, Chess, because you mentioned, for example, that you have been going to meet teachers after classroom, after your class to challenge sometimes the content of their syllabus. And I wonder if there's any example of a positive response that kind of showed good habits or good that could potentially, you know, drive those habits we want to see in the classroom. I mean, yeah, quickly, there's one prof, like, her name comes to mind, she's just this brilliant human, um, like Debbie Follaron, and what was awesome with her is also the class structure. It was all driven by group discussions that were unraveling. So we were assigned readings every week, so we have group one day, whatever, and it would be scrambled a little bit. And so we were the one, like, driving, and she was being what the hub does. She was a facilitator participant. And so she was helping us spontaneously come up with an intelligent response to the text. Then she would contrast it from group to group and she would reframe it by asking better questions to help us evolve past our own limitations. And so I feel it's like this beautiful dynamic equilibrium where you have student agency leadership that's protected and recognized, where the prof slash instructor is a very powerful driving entity that helps us collaborate organically. Um, and what she would call like the sessions where she was the one really encouraged us to come and see her She would call those like her jam sessions and you will go to her at any given stage of development of your thought idea. And she was all about that life support. When I would go to her, she would have resources. She would feel like tighten your prose. Um, and she's also a very beautiful being herself who, you know, does a lot of beautiful activistic work and you could tell, right. And her own life story. And so with her, like she really helped a lot. I have to say, and I've learned so much from the way that she is, the way that she teaches, and the way that she makes herself available as well. And um, yeah, and I loved it because whatever the issue was, you never really knew what she thought. Uh, and yet, I don't know, she was very, she's a very sagacious and powerful person. And so for me, she was like the ultimate connector in the classroom. So when something was said that, that was problematic, she found a way to, I don't know, tease out intelligence out of problematicity. And she was never calling people out. So she was referring to the thought and debating the idea, but not the person where that came from. And I noticed that was a class where I had the highest level of engagement from all the students, particularly people who never spoke in other classes. So I feel that her way of doing things and her context is, you know, a reference model that I would love to see uh, implanted in different parts of like the department and other communities. And especially as grad students, having people who are very, you know, conscious and like introverted and whatever, not necessarily like vocal, Um, even in their own personalities, like to see them feel so comfortable that we would have those beautiful conversations and would just throw out and so many beautiful thoughts and we're just blowing each other's minds and we're laughing. That was the class where we laughed a lot. It was genuine laughter, not awkward laughter. And yeah, so I feel there's a lot to be said about that, that particular woman. So like Bibi Folahon, just like a shout out to her. Yeah, so that was my positive experience. Mathias and Chesson, fantastic ideas and actionable tools to give to the listeners and moving forward in our hub because it is really difficult to create something new in an existing system or in the in the existing setting that we have and it's a lot more dynamic when we change the setting so 
putting ourselves in a gem session instead of in like a traditional classroom format. If you see uh, some work in indigenizing pedagogy is actually going out into the land and doing classroom outside, like change the setting, change the expectations. And I think it's almost inevitable that something new is going to uh, come from that. And so that's a very, it's an important idea and an important task. And I think in the hub, as we're thinking about these actionable tools, it's really what kind of innovative, creative ways can we actually learn differently? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm one, also the more you talk, uh, Matthias, and bringing all these like new references from your experience, and I guess like this is how what you're looking at in your research, but what is it in arts or music, well, arts in general, I guess, that creates horizontality in the space, you know, so that the different uh, musicians can come together and play together no matter what, and how do they tune into each other so that they come up with this final result or this ongoing result. So I'm wondering, like, what's the difference in the space that creates this uh, horizontality? That's a great question. No, I, I mean... I guess, yeah, I think trying to think through like the transferability of these things and like what what allows them to take place in the first place. Right. So what is it? Because if we can't take, obviously, like we're not going to necessarily like we don't have the ability or the the opportunity to like play music together in the classroom. But like what can we take from that practice and transfer over to like what we're doing? I mean, I think what I one thing I sort of think, too, is sort of that that one line from Christina Sharp where she says, like we must become undisciplined, but the idea being like undisciplined being like that we have to sort of like forego sort of the disciplinary borders that like cordon off certain forms of knowledge from others and refuses that certain type of like ensemble thinking that we're all trying to get after, but then also just be undisciplined a little bit in a way that, you know, just like push up against the various forms of formality and, and like, like sort of this more let's say i mean the more undesirable forms of collegiality that were are imposed on us and just kind of open up and just let people kind of like let it out of it but no i don't know that's true the horizontality is is really hard because i just sort of feel like you know with hierarchy it's like it's not a question of like achieving horizontality but it's almost like whack-a-mole with like hierarchy because hierarchy just always like it's to me, it just keeps coming up and it's just being attuned to where it's like all of a sudden rising up. And then how can we sort of move away from it or develop a new strategy on the fly um, as opposed to horizontality, like horizontality being sort of like achievable, but like very temporary, which may, might be a little bit pessimistic on my part, but it just feels like like inevitably we it's, it's not a place of it's like of comfort. It's a place of sort of like close analysis and also awareness on how to sort of sort of maintain that positionality or that collective sort of positionality that like almost makes each individual position seem indistinguishable from the other. I don't know. I think even just the way that we're kind of flowing with this conversation or other opportunities I've had to sort of speak with people and you feel people kind of like having that type of generosity and care and sort of Jamila, you were talking about, um, I can't remember the exact um, term you use, but, something within that sort of train of gener generosity care. Like, yeah, I don't know how you institute that in, in a classroom setting at all. To me, it just seems like that's something that you come in with 
Yeah, I wonder, talking about coming with something or um, like before you mentioned film or poetry or the different things that speak to us, I wonder if there's a link between the concept of expertise and inspiration. And I think the interesting thing about inspiration, whether in arts or somewhere else, is that it, it, it ties into our background, our history, or like political things that are happening in our lives and people's lives and all these things. So I wonder if that could be also maybe a basis to kind of fuel a syllabistic construction or any type of other similar projects rather than expertise. I think so, Alba. I think that's a, a good idea. I think it's a good, it's an interesting, not even a dichotomy, but it's interesting to play with those two ideas and themes. Um, and it made me think of what you were asking, Matthias, about empathy and whether people can, right, either you understand other people's pain and you're aware of uh, how to be nice to people or you're ignorant. Like, this is what it feels like, right? Um, but I, I, maybe I'm an optimist, and maybe the hub is optimistic, but we are trying to move forth with the idea that there, there's a way to get people to become more empathetic of others through awareness and will. And we make this assumption that anyone who attends our events or, or comes on our podcast is ready to try to look at things differently. Because at the end of the day, there are going to be people who just do not want change if you want to keep their like if we think of our elderly grandma and grandpas you guys might have really woke grandparents but I can say mine are pretty intensely not <laughs> and so like there's people that just want to keep their mind frame and this is actually interesting I was talking to a um I would say a colleague this morning or a collaborator and we were talking about how there's always going to be a group of people who do not want to change, but there's going to be another group of people who do. And are we really trying to change the mind of ignorant people or mobilize everybody who's progressive-minded progressive, progressive minded and use the energy of progressive-minded people to change the system despite the ignorant people? So they can sit there with their ignorance and then all of the progressive-minded progressive people come together and just start slowly snowballing and bringing more people into our into our mix until the ignorance is a minority. So like, there's this big question, but anyways, I do think that it's possible to facilitate a culture of empathy, but what that means and how to get people to do that has to come from will. As I say, I'm curious, Matthias, um, about like, what gets you, let's say, inspired right now about everything that's going on? You know, you know, whatever in your projects or whatever that you see happening, like what brings you hope in this conversation? At least from a specifically Concordia standpoint, the BPI talk, the Black Perspectives Initiatives talk got me really inspired. Going to see Deanna Bowen's um, exhibit, which is just in the plateau near the park right now, got me kind of inspired. This new cluster hire in the Faculty of Fine Arts has me inspired. Because one thing that I get a little bit hesitant with, because I'm trying to think this in terms of like, is syllabus deconstruction, is it an act of reform or abolition, right? And this is something I'm trying to been think through, trying to think through, right? Because you don't want it to be like within the U.S., like Nancy Pelosi wearing a kente cloth, right? Where it's like you just, you know what I mean? Like it's not just some sort of hollow, empty gesture. 
that maintains a, some form of like liberal exclusion, right? Because in the end, we need more BIPOC professors, right? We need like a black studies program. We, these things, these things are like the, the, that the syllabus deconstruction needs to, in my, in my estimation, feed into these things as well, right? And not sort of gloss over. You can't be like, oh, now we don't have to hire any BIPOC professors because all our white professors have like, have jazzed up their syllabus. So now, you know, now that need is no longer present. But sort of recognizing these two things is like functioning on two separate temporalities, just like Angela Davis teaches us that on one hand, we have to like imagine a world without prisons. But on another hand, we have to attend to the people who are in prison today who, who need who need to be, you know, given more. Recognize those as, as two different temporalities, one that sort of maybe relates more to sort of immediate action and others that sort of a radical type of, um, I, can't, I can't think of the word right now, but just like a, 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 different, a different temporality, let's say. And I just sort of look around and it feels like people are tuned into those two separate temporalities, it feels like. You know, we're tending to like the immediate needs that we have and that we need to, like that, how we can change classrooms like today but also like this more long game effort within the university to, and this is so much of this has to do with all the hard work like y'all been putting in too. So like, it's, it's just really as a student at Concordia, it's like super exciting, right? It, it feels like things are happening and the BPI talk got me really invigorated in that way, but sort of beyond, beyond that, I'm really excited and trying to think through a lot of sort of the um, scholarship that's coming out thinking like black and indigenous solidarity and sort of like really looking at it and unpacking it and like this, that collection, Otherwise Worlds and the work by Tiffany Lothabo King. And uh, this stuff to me is just like, it's super exciting and it's, it's really difficult and really complex and really challenging to like, it really shows how deep certain assumptions are sedimented into like the ground that we stand on. And then also just a little bit of the panic for me with like seeing in New York City, a lot of the sort of the elders of the, like the certain jazz period that I'm really invested in and just realizing that this knowledge is sort of sort of slipping away potentially that we're not that we need to sort of tend to that knowledge in those traditions and sort of make sure that we keep up that like those levels of communication with with elders who um, who are right now just very vulnerable. So just seeing seeing the way that the musicians and that I follow are still persevering through this time, even though it's really difficult, obviously, uh, with quarantine and certain inabilities to perform. Um, but yeah, those are the kind of the things I've been thinking about lately. But yeah, I, I'm curious to know if any of you have thought, like, have any thoughts on this idea of like syllabus deconstruction as it relates to reform, but syllabus, syllabus de- deconstruction as it relates to abolition, let's say. Yeah, no, I totally what you're saying. And it's, it also makes me think, for example, we worked with SHIFT um, and like it was a comedy and we're looking at people that are pitching their ideas to get funding, right? And they're in different works, um, line of works, like um, as activists and whatever. And I feel like you're saying the two temporalities and people who do relief response and they have people who go the long-term game. And what I am starting to realize more and more in our field is like a lot of time that binary divides them. And then so that microsystemic change that occurs, it's very too much localized. Um, and those people are not aware of one another. And there's also the need to think beyond the crisis. Like you were saying, so to live and uh, respect and acknowledgement of the crisis, but also to want to establish a mobilizing force that will outlive and defeat the crisis. Um, but too often there is not that, you know, and um, talking with them, I feel it's important to groom people as they create their own organizations and efforts 
to think along those lines. And it's another way where we have positive tension. And the example you give with the, the syllabus is one big, is a big one, right? So the syllabus is one element of the hierarchy that we want to destabilize, but there are other things. And if that exists in a silo, then we're going to have the same problem, right? And once that salon decon would have happened in whatever shape or form, like, yeah, we did our part, you know, like, we're good. Um, and that's exactly what we want to, to prevent. So, like, to connect people. So I feel it's going back to, like, be a connector. If you do your revolution in your corner, it's not a revolution because when you die, it dies with you. So you have an accountability to future where you are obsolete on purpose. It can be about your own intelligence and leadership. I would just add to that and say, I love what you're saying, Cheslina, how you're talking about the short and the long term. And I think this is something we've been thinking about as a hub. And when I think about syllabus decon, I see it as we're reforming to abolish. And they go hand in hand because, as we talked about, completely removing the system altogether isn't a possible task to just wake up and just do. It's about what are the, the habits that we can do now that will completely deconstruct Eurocentricity, the default to be exclusive, racist. We're trying to abolish this system, but to do that, we have to reform our practices. And I think um, that is a really, I like how you mentioned this, Matthias, because I think this is a really nice way of making the unraveling process of the syllabus more tangible when you're not thinking about it as like a whole zero to 100 process and more of a day-to-day kind of reaction. And so reforming to abolish, I would say, for the syllabus depot. I think also, I'm not sure how exactly concretely, but really giving confidence to everyone who is working in that way. And as Jamila said, as a hub, we're trying to think about that. And I think what we mentioned about habits, always appreciating diversity in the, like the type of references that are brought in or coming in with new references and when someone does appreciating that and like that kind of positive reinforcement in the process and just always remember that we're constantly working towards the higher objectives and we have to do it the more voices we are the better so just maybe staying confident that the intention and like the consistency is what matters a lot as well so let's say maybe these two things so I feel like those are like her main things. And then they open the door to many reinterpretations. And so far as they remain action-driven as well, it's important, like Matthias was saying, to work with those different temporalities, the todayness of the relief response, and then the overarching progress that is going to transcend our own timeline. Gosh, I've, I've learned so much. I, I well, Thank you so much. Thank you, Matthias, for your knowledge and your presence. Thank you so much for having me and just for, for sharing the, the energy all the time. And, you know, when you're when you're when you're fighting through it, it's like it, that's the support that's just life giving, you know, so together, together. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for joining us. There's so much to explore around decoloniality and how we can be more proactive in this process wherever we are. We'd love to hear thoughts and opinions from our listeners as well, so don't hesitate to reach out on Facebook or by email. And we have more podcasts coming up soon from the Decolonial Hub. And meanwhile, lots of love from the team to all of you.